Hello, and welcome to History is Gay, a podcast that examines the underappreciated and overlooked queer ladies, gents, and gentle envies that have always been there in the unexplored corners of history. Because history has never been as straight as you think. Gretchen. Hey, I'm Lee. And in this episode, we have a very special episode today. We are going to be talking about pride. Pride. Happy pride, Woo! everyone. Happy pride. Woo! Yeah. Yeah. It is the month of all the gay. <laughs> all the gay forever and always. All Except, I guess, in those places where people have prides in like October because it's too hot in June. Yeah. Madison, actually, we have our Pride March in August, and I don't know why, because Milwaukee, <laughs> like, Milwaukee Pride Fest was two weekends ago, or was last weekend, so I don't know why Madison's weird. I don't know. That's Whatever. strange. Yeah, it is really strange. <laughs> so, speaking of Pride Parades, that's what we're going to be talking about today. We will be talking about where the Pride March came from and about the Pride flag. Yes. Yeah, we wanted to really focus on the the trailblazers that came before us that have made it possible for us to be able to go around and dance and celebrate and be our queerest selves among community. Um, we really wanted to highlight some of those folks. Right. To me, especially because it feels like pride can be very, uh, um, what's the, what's the word? Capitalist? Huh. What? Capitalist? Big like, corporations it, getting our money, putting it on rainbow floats. Right, like merch focus, like buy, like in the month of June, we'll put rainbow flags on things so you'll buy them. Yeah. Like very corporate. Corporate's the mm -hmm. word I was going for. There we go. So we wanted to kind of get back to what Pride was really all about. What? Let's talk about the people who were involved in making Pride a thing and kind of what, what was their focus and goal. Mm-hmm. As yeah. we celebrate ourselves, which is like, it's cool to buy rainbow birch. Like I'm not, no judgment. I've got, I've got pride stuff too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but wanna, we want to get at the root of things. You right. Know, bring bring, more bring than it back. Yeah. It's more than a, more than a sticker. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah. So we're going to, we're going to be specifically talking about two individuals. We're going to give you a little bit of context about what was going on in the United States around the time that Pride first kind of kicked off. And then we're going to talk about two individuals. We're going to talk about Brenda Howard and we're going to talk about Gilbert Baker. So yes. uh, let's see, do we have any sort of content warnings, anything like that? I think this is pretty tame this week. I mean, unless you're yeah. squeaked out by discussions of like BDSM and, you know, but it's like very, like explicit. very, you know, cursory discussion right. of it. Right. Um, it's a thing. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is a thing. This person was into it. Yay. Um, you know, right. so if that's not your jam, then, you know, don't listen to this one. But um, it's not like we're gonna, you know, be teaching you the ways and <laughs> all of these lovely things right. of the BDSM This is not like community. a primer. Yeah. Like... <laughs> <laughs> it just comes up. That's a different podcast we'll do. Yeah, that's a very different podcast. <laughs> um, so it feels like this episode is kind of a mixed. I mean, yeah. it's primarily a people-focused episode. Um, so we're going to do a very brief rundown, as Lee said, of what was going on around the time period pre-Stonewall, Stonewall itself. Nothing super 
in depth again, just kind of a basic overview. And then we're going to get into the biographies of Gilbert Baker and Brenda Howard. And then we'll end with our How Gay Were They, which yeah. is our personal ranking. And I mean, we're, well. we're omitting the why do we think they're gay uh, section from this episode, mostly because this is kind of our first episode really focusing on folks who were directly involved in specifically queer activism. So, right. you know, kind of comes with the territory. So, you know, if yeah, you miss why that- do, Why do we think they're gay? Because they were, were- self-professed- the queer <laughs> members of the queer community and activists. Yeah, that is no why. one, no one can, uh, no one can take that away from them and try to er- erase their identity because that's primarily what they were known for. Um, right. So yeah, I guess let's um let's launch in. We we don't have a specifically like queer word of the week for you today, but I know that I learned a fun new word just as somebody who likes adding things to their lexicon. I learned about vexillography, which is the profession of flag making, which is what oh. uh Gilbert Baker is. He is a vexillographer, which I didn't know that there was a name for other than flag maker. So right, that's exciting. Right. Right, it's one of those things that you're that like on the one hand doesn't surprise me because back in the day when they used to have fancy words for specific like cartographer. Like, right, right, that like of course there would be a, a name for a flag maker because flags were made prior to automation. Mm-hmm. You know, so they would have had a specific name for someone who makes flags yeah, as that, opposed that to craft. Yes, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, craft, that's a good way of putting it. So yeah, go out, tell the world about Gilbert Baker after you listen to this episode, and make all of your friends jealous because of how smart you sound by using big words. The famous gay vexillographer, Gilbert Baker. Oh, yes. Mm, And you have to to use the NPR voice and get very close to the microphone. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I don't care if you don't have a microphone, you can still use your NPR voice. Oh, yeah. Like <laughs> custom- it's like the customer service voice. Like, there's just certain voices that you can just do. Oh, yeah. I use my customer service voice all the time. It's about an octave higher. <laughs> yep. Yep. Exactly. This, this is my gay voice. My straight <laughs> voice is often very similar to my customer service voice. Um, it doesn't come out a lot, but, you know, in certain situations when I just don't feel like going on a long tirade about the ways in which I specifically identify, I will use my straight voice. Code switching. Hey. Woohoo. All right. Okay. Um, let's dive into the historical context of this time period. Lee, do you want to get us started with a brief rundown of pre-Stonewall yes. activism? Yes. So this is going to be like the briefest little breakdown of, of like pre-Stonewall US queer activism. The reason why we're just doing it as a little tiny breakdown is not because we don't care or find it fascinating. We have plans to cover this in the future, so don't worry about it. But basically, so the events of the Stonewall police raid in 1969, and we're going to talk about is the event that a lot of people think of as the thing that is, had kickstarted Pride, and we're going to talk about that. But it was not the first event or gathering of people or, organi- or you know, creation of organizations working to change the status of queer people in the United States. It's a long history going back to the Society for Human Rights in the 1920s, which is actually something that was inspired by Magnus Hirschfeld's work, which is really fun. 
Um, you also had this movement in the 1950s, the homophile movement, mainly uh, headed up by a group called the Mattachine Society, which was like a secret organization of gays. And then the lesbian <laughs> kind of counterpart, the Daughters of Belitis, in the 1950s. And then there were riots that actually came before Stonewall, where queer and trans people, some of the most marginalized, you know, trans women, drag queens, hustlers, you know, a lot of other sex workers, there were riots where these folks fought back against police brutality and harassment. You'll mm. eventually hear us talk about events like the Cooper Donuts riot of 1959 in Los Angeles, the picketing of Compton's Cafeteria in San Francisco in 1966, and then again in Los Angeles at the Black Cat in 1967. These things built a foundation of resistance and attitude shifting that led to the response on that fateful summer night in 1969 at Stonewall that would change how the queer community demanded to be treated from now on. Um, you know, it didn't, it didn't come out of nowhere. In the meantime, you know, until we bring you episodes on these events, you can get some really, really wonderful stories about a lot of these events and organizations by listening to a couple of other really wonderful podcasts. There's Making Gay History, which has oral histories from a lot of the people involved in these, as well as the Mattachine Files. So go ahead, go listen to those. We will cover them eventually. But in the in-between times when you're wanting to listen to History is Gay, go check those out. So yeah, now we want to transition into just giving another brief rundown of Stonewall for those of you who don't know about it. So the Stonewall Inn Bar on Christopher Street in New York City was an institution that welcomed gay people and specifically catered to patrons who were the most marginalized in the queer community. Trans people, drag queens, hustlers, homeless youth, butch lesbians, effeminate gay men, a lot of folks found home in the Stonewall Bar. And this is at a period of time where police are constantly raiding gay institutions. And so this night on June 28th, 1969 at 1.20 a.m., the police barged into the bar and began to arrest patrons. And they came because the bar was operating without a liquor license and they were actually uh, owned by the mafia. So that's fun. <laughs> mafia protecting gays. Woo. Woo! But so, you know, it was kind of like a last minute thing. They barged in on foot and then squad cars hadn't arrived yet. So they put folks that they had arrested in in handcuffs and they were like sitting out on the sidewalk standing in the street and all of this commotion started to draw a crowd and this crowd started on looking and one of the folks who was arrested a, a woman named oh god what's her name stormy delavere i think she was in handcuffs and she was actually hit over the head by the officers and she pleaded to the crowd to do something which prompted the onlookers to start throwing objects at police bottles pennies a whole bunch of different things and this began a huge riot you know hundreds of people involved which led the police officers to barricading them themselves inside the bar and then the crowd set fire to the barricade but unlike other events that had happened in the past like the black cat riot like compton's cafeteria riot these demonstrations continued they continued for the next like six days after that night and so essentially a metaphorical fire was started these riots mm -hmm. all of the actions followed following that night made it clear that the LGBT community needed to be louder and more visible. 
this hmm. kind of put a fire under everyone's butts to say that nothing was going to change if we continued passive, non-threatening tactics. You know, queers fight back right. was the message that start, started to, to gain traction after mm-hmm. Stonewall. And right. so with right. that... Yeah, immediately after Stonewall, you have the founding of things like the Gay Liberation Front, um, which was founded in 1969. Oh very soon after Stonewall. Um, It was a society that advocated for sexual liberation of all people and believed that heterosexuality was a remnant of cultural sexual inhibition. They believed that true and lasting change would not come about without dismantling social institutions and rebuilding those institutions without sexual roles. So one of these things that they wanted to get rid of, for example, was the nuclear family, which they sought to replace with, you know, a more of a loose affiliation of people, like with a chosen family model. Mm-hmm. Uh, people coming together without biological subtext involved, like our confam. Hey, shout out to confam. Woo! Commune, not a cult. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so prominent members of the Gay Liberation Front uh, also addressed other issues like racism, sexism, anti-war efforts. We have to remember that Vietnam was still ongoing during Mm -hmm. this time. So there was lots of like anti-militarism movements going on. And there was a lot of crossover between people who are involved in, say, the uh, racial civil rights and uh, queer civil rights, as well as, you know, anti-Vietnam protests. Second wave feminism too. Yep. You have all of that kind of this, really this kind of perfect storm of people who were marginalized in society fighting back and making their voices heard in much more aggressive, visible ways, kind of all around the same time. So the Gay Liberation Front didn't last super long. They ended in 1972 due to internal rivalries. One of the spinoff or splinter groups, uh, which was actually founded six months after the founding of the Gay Liberation Front, was the Gay Activist Alliance. Its stated goal was to form a, quote, single-issue, politically neutral organization whose goal was to secure basic human rights, dignity, and freedom for all gay people. It was most active from 1970 to 74, but it did publish what they called their gay activist newspaper up until 1980. They were known for uh, things, zaps, which were these raucous public demonstrations designed to embarrass public figures, celebrities, uh, while also calling attention to both gays and straights uh, of to both gays and straights to issues of LGBT rights. Wow, that that just reminds me of, you know, what we have now, which is just glitter bombing. That's like the precursor to glitter bombing. I love it. Yeah, yeah, it really was. I mean, they would do, like, they would protest episodes of popular TV shows. They would stage these very public protests of public figures, people involved in government, of just kind of, like, surrounding them and, you know, really you know, yelling at them, making their voices heard. Um, Some of these activist groups, both of these ones previously mentioned, both the Gay Liberation Front and the Gay Activist Alliance, were sometimes known for forced outings Mm -hmm. of celebrities or, again, public figures as a way that was their... Their intent was, I mean, it's not actually that dissimilar from Hirschfeld Mm. or the arguments that Hirschfeld got into with some of the more militant Mm-hmm. gay rights activists of the late 19th century in Germany, where they were really, or in the early 20th century, like they were really pushing for publicity. And so what they wanted was to out, you know, high ranking public figures and celebrities to show that kind of the gays are everywhere, therefore we're normal. Mm-hmm. And you have similar kinds of impulses within some of these activist groups to do the same thing, which was their goals were good, but 
you know, the means... Methods, you know, not so... Yeah. Not the most helpful. Right. Um, those of us who have been forcibly outed can attest that it is um, not pleasant, to put it mildly. And, yeah. and there could be a lot of problems that come with that. So we're not advocating for any particular methodology. We're just saying this, these are things that they did. So uh, in March 1970, the Gay Activist Alliance organized protests against the police raid on the Snake Pit Bar in Greenwich Village. Um, so this was primarily in New York. The Gay Activist Alliance was was a New York thing, as I believe the Gay Liberation Front was originally as well, because that's where Stonewall was. Mm-hmm. And the violence suffered by Diego Vinales in the aftermath of the, the raid on the Snake Pit Bar. So these protests in March of 1970 actually sparked interest in the upcoming Christopher Street Liberation Day, which brings us to... The first Pride Parades. Yes. So, about five months after the Stonewall Riots, activists Craig Rodwell, Fred Sargent, who was his partner, Ellen Brody, and Linda Rhodes proposed a resolution at the Eastern Regional Conference of Homophile Organizations, or ERCO. This is actually a... It was basically a coalition of different queer organizations, originally actually set up by the Daughters of Belitis, and they met in Philadelphia and decided to organize a march in New York City to commemorate the first anniversary of the Stonewall Raid. Yep. And they they proposed this to be very different than the previous and current methods by a lot of queer activists, which were silent walks and vigils, and they, they did a proposal specifically for, and quote, annual march on the last Saturday in June with no dress or age regulations. So previous actions, you know, had had people in strict heteronormative, very formal dress codes, men in slacks, trousers, women in dresses, you know, trying really hard to enforce this kind of assimilation of, hey, gays are just like other people. Right. But the concept of these parades, this this march was to be, we're going to celebrate as we are. Right. Let's be as visible as our true selves as possible. Mm -hmm. Because obviously, you know, anything prior to this, you know, it still led to Stonewall. It still led to us being chained by by laws about how many pieces of clothing of the, quote, opposite gender you could legally be wearing. Mm -hmm. And so they really wanted to make this demonstration something that was without that kind of stigma and judgment. Yep. Yep. So the proposal was approved and Brenda Howard, who we will get to, planned the first event and also proposed to make the Christopher Street Liberation Day more than just a day, but a week-long event of celebration. Uh, She's also the creator of the concept of pride as a festival and celebration. And again, we'll uh, get to that more when we get into her biography. Mm -hmm. But Brenda and Craig Rodwell got the word out using the mailing list from Rodwell's bookstore the Oscar Wilde Bookshop on Christopher Street, and yeah, so that leads that was, us. I just thought that was yeah. a really nice. Like, oh, they got it out using Oscar Wilde. Thanks. Oh man, Oscar Wilde, so much. I'm so excited for when we finally do our episode on him. <sighs> Oscar Wilde. He just, yes, he there are so many delightful up. things. Oh yeah, yep, so much. Yeah. So June twenty eighth. 1970 was the Christopher Street Gay Liberation Day in New York City, which was the first, being, I guess, official pride event that we can talk about. Mm -hmm. And 
But, like, it wasn't, you know, there were actually some demonstrations leading up to it. Yeah, so Chicago actually took to the streets the day before New York City. Um, And so they had a week-long celebration that included a gay dance, uh, workshops, and speeches. And 150 people marched from Washington Square Park to the Water Tower. And it was organized by the Gay Liberation Movement, and the official slogan of that march and that event was Gay Power. Days later, you also had other cities that followed to commemorate the first anniversary the Stonewall riots alongside New York. So, you know, in LA, they held a march on June 29th. And in San Francisco, they held a gay in. San Francisco actually wouldn't have its first official, like, pride parade until two years later. Mm. And there was, you know, there were marches in Boston and other places as well. Yep. Yeah. So the march in New York City was 51 blocks long from west of 6th Avenue to Central Park, where activists held a gay in which you just previously mentioned in San Francisco, which is a protest and celebration that prompted the New York Times to run the headline, quote, thousands of homosexuals held a protest rally in Central Park. Yes. Unquote. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, this a, event I, was, you know, while it was was partially, you know, remembrance and partially celebration, you know, there were no floats, there was no music, no dancers. Pride was meant to be a political statement and a test. You know, what would happen when queers made themselves visible and out in numbers? Mm. Fred Sargent, as we mentioned before, one of the activists, one of the marchers, actually said to the Village Voice magazine decades later, quote, There were no floats, no music, no boys in briefs. The cops turned their backs on us to convey their disdain, but the masses of people kept carrying signs and banners, chanting and waving to surprised onlookers. Hmm. Yep. Yeah. So in New York City and Atlanta, the marches were called Gay Liberation Marches, and the day was Gay Liberation Day. In Los Angeles and San Francisco, they became known as Gay Freedom Marches and Gay Freedom Day. Um, so mm. that is kind of where, you know, where we're starting from. This is what Pride was originally meant to be. You know, it came from riots. It was a political act. It was still celebration, but it wasn't meant to be something with, you know, originally with floats and with music and a big dance party, like, you know, some straights will be like, well, you know, I just want it to be a big gay dance party. And it's like, yes, but we're also trying to, like, fight for the ability to not get killed when we walk out right. our door or, like, have housing and employment discrimination and all of <sighs> these things. So, like, you weren't interested in it when it was a riot. Why are you now only interested when it's a dance? Um right. But that's a whole right. other soapbox I can go on. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly, when it's a party, all the straight everyone want wants to in. come. Yeah, um, but mm. there's like really fantastic photos from the gay in in Central Park. You know, people just laying on the ground together, like kissing and playing mm. games and having this whole celebration. And you know, it was it. These were things that that culminated after this march. And so with that. We're gonna we're gonna start talking about how that came to be. How did how right. did this this organization of Pride as a Festival come to be? Who is who is the mastermind behind these things? Hmm. Well, the mastermind behind planning the events of the Christopher Street Liberation Day was Brenda Howard, also called the Mother of Pride. Yay! And what's what's been intriguing as I've been researching her is just how. There's not as much about her, and and she is frequently left out mm. of a lot of the conversations, especially about Stonewall. I have a book that's all about, like, you know, the making of – it's called The Making of Queer History, and it's literally about, like, gay and lesbian 
liberation from, you know, 1950 to 1990, and she's not in it. Wow, really? Um, yep. Yeah. Yep. It's like, I, uh, I really appreciate that the conversation around Stonewall, around Pride, has really started shifting to really focus on, you know, Sylvia Rivera, Marsha Johnson, who were really, really involved in these things. But also, we want to make sure that we don't erase other people, you know, at right. the ex- at the expense of, of lifting up you know, voices that have also been erased. We want to make sure that we're providing a full picture. Um, and right. as for, for someone who is literally the person who, you know, maybe is not one of the people who was like directly, directly involved in Stonewall, which is the thing that kickstarted Pride, is the person who literally gave us Pride. So right. we wanted right. to Pride specifically the talk event. about her. Yeah, Pride the event. Um, right. And even the name, even calling it that. Mm-hmm can be traced back to Brenda Howard. So who is Brenda Howard? Brenda Howard was uh, born on December 24th, 1946 in the Bronx and grew up in Nassau County, New York in a Jewish family. So woohoo, more queer Jews. More queer Jews. I love it. She, when she was in college, she got a degree in nursing and uh, she, (laughs) this is one of my favorite descriptions of her from uh, one of her memorials after she died was quote, troublemaker, strategist, editor, Jew, friend, lover, and distinguished phone sex worker. I love this. Yes. I love her. Tells you so much about her. So in the late 1960s, uh, Brenda Howard was involved in the anti-Vietnam movement, even living in a commune of war resistors and draft dodgers in Brooklyn. Hell yeah. And yeah, I know. (laughs) It's like, that's a thing. That was a thing. I mean, you're going to, you know, yeah, you're going to see that with Gilbert Baker too. Like gays and anti-war efforts have gone pretty well yep gotten yep. along they've been around well together for a long time mm-hmm. so she became frustrated with the male dominance within the anti-vietnam movement and therefore joined the feminist movement as well and while she wasn't at stonewall she was actually very close friends with many of the people who were in the bar during the stonewall riots she was active in the gay liberation front which as we as i mentioned earlier was founded immediately after stonewall and was the chair of the gay activist alliance speakers bureau so she was she might not have been at stonewall but was very quickly became heavily involved with all of the activist groups that um spun off of stonewall and was close friends with the people who were there. So Mother of Pride, where does that come from? So she helped coordinate and plan the rally for the Christopher Street Liberation Day March. Uh, She was the one who originated the idea of a week-long series of events around Pride as a festival and celebration rather than more of a memorial, which became the basis for not just Pride Week, but Pride Month, that we have Mm -hmm. like a month of such events or even individual events in your town that might, you know, Milwaukee has Pride Fest, which is a weekend, like a four-day weekend with music festival and and all of the other things attached to that. So that, you can trace that idea directly back to Brenda Howard. She's also credited alongside Stephen Donaldson and L. Craig Schoonmaker with popularizing the term Pride to describe this event rather than the Christopher Street Liberation Day. Mm-hmm. Which I'm sure most people haven't actually heard of that phrase. Yeah. Um, it's also a bit of a mouthful. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> Takes a long time. It's very localized, too. You know, it doesn't make a lot of sense, you know, in L.A. or, you know, 
Uganda after many, many years. To call it that. Mm -hmm. So a good summary of her involvement. So he's a a system admin and he's a bisexual activist as well. His name is Tom Limoncelli said, the next time someone asks you why LGBT pride marches exist or why gay pride month is June, tell them a bisexual woman named Brenda Howard thought it should be. And then made it Uh, happen. And then made it happen. Mm -hmm. She was active in the coalition for gay and lesbian rights, which helped pass the New York gay rights law in 1986. Uh, She was also active in ACT UP, which for those of you who don't know is the advocacy group for AIDS, and Queer Nation, which was another activist group of people from ACT UP that spoke out against violence. And they were known for their even more aggressive and controversial tactics like public outing and being confrontational with police and public figures. According to her longtime partner, Larry Nelson, he says of, of Brenda Howard, You needed something done to help organizing some kind of protest or something in social justice. All you had to do was call her and she'd just say when and where. Hmm. So she was very, very active in, you know, everything. Her friend Haim Obadia said of her, she knew that her lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender Jews to pray together as Jews and as lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people, it was both spiritually fulfilling and politically revolutionary. So while she was not a practicing Jew, she understood the value of praying together as a community and that one's religious experience wasn't separate from their experience as being a queer person, even though those things can be, you know, very, very complicated uh, when they intersect together. Uh, At the same time, she was also famous for driving people (laughs) crazy on the details of grammar and punctuation placement and flyers. So Uh, um, she's active. (laughs) I know, right? I just love it that she's like super active in all these different things and was also the one to be like, hey, guys, you spelled that wrong. Hey, guys, that's not not how you use apostrophes. Yeah, I love that she's just like also a grammar nerd. Yes, yes. (laughs) Love that for her. She's fantastic. Yeah, she's pretty great. (laughs) <laughs> and while while she advocated on the topic of her advocating and being involved in so many different activist groups, the closest thing to her heart really was bisexual activism. So she helped found the New York Area Bisexual Network in 1987, which helped service the bi, the bi community there. She was a member of the early bi political activist coalition. BIPAC, which is now uh, called Biolog, after it merged with the Coalition for Unity and Inclusion. That name, she was makes, a regi- that name makes me so happy. Biolog? Oh my god! I know, right? Uh, uh, it's, a, it's a queer activist group that's a pun. Oh, yes, Biolog. That's my favorite. Bio- uh, it's great. This is such a great discovery. Gretchen did all of the <sighs> research for Brenda Howard, so like most of this is, you know, I know cursory stuff, but this is all like me discovering this and being excited while she talks. So you guys yep. get to go yep. along with me on this journey. And then we'll and then we'll do the same except the opposite for Gilbert Baker. Yes, I just listened to because he's delightful too. Oh but I only know cursory things. <laughs> um. So anyway, I loved dialogue too. I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> can I can I call <gasps> anything that I say now dialogue? Can we can we make a shirt? that says let's have a biologue yes yes okay i'm gonna write that down (laughs) eventually we'll have a store oh my gosh we will we've got logistics so many ideas we have logistics to figure out don't worry about it (laughs) yeah i'm gonna start saying anything i say now is technically biologue yes (laughs) so yeah she was uh 
That was the what was formerly the Biopolitical Activist Coalition. She's also the regional organizer for BiNet USA and a co-facilitator of the Bisexual SM Discussion Group and a founder of the nation's first Alcoholics Anonymous chapter for bisexuals. Mm. Yep. She worked on both the 1987 March on Washington for Lesbian and Gay Rights and the 1993 March on Washington for Lesbian, Gay, and Bi Equal Rights Ooh. and Liberation, where she was the female co-chair of the Leather Contingent and... Stonewall 25, the Stonewall 25, I think it was a march, uh, in 1994. Yeah, it was, so, it uh, was the, it was to commemorate the 25th anniversary of right. Stonewall in 1994, which yeah. Gilbert Baker was also a part of as well. Yep. So, uh, leather, for those of you who are unfamiliar, uh, leather in the queer community typically refers to BDSM culture, though it can also refer to leather wearing as a fetish in itself, but that's just heads up for those of you who don't know what the leather contingent would have been. Mm -hmm. So she also successfully helped Lani Ka'ahumanu to lobby for inclusion of bisexuals in the 1993 March on Washington, which at the time was primarily focused on gay men and lesbians, as you can tell from the fact that in 1987, it was called the March on Washington for Lesbian and Gay Rights, whereas in 1993, it was the March on Washington for Lesbian, Gay, and Bi Equal Rights. Woo! Fuck bi erasure. Yes. Tear it down. I love it. <sighs> yeah. In so she was arrested several times because of all of her activism. Unsurprisingly, she was arrested several times. <laughs> in 1988, she was arrested in Chicago while demonstrating for national health care and the fair treatment of women, people of color, and those living with HIV and AIDS, which we are still fighting for 30 years later. <laughs> Fuck this shit. <sighs> I read that and was like, Fuck. Bring her back. This is. Can this we just, is still a thing that we're fighting for 30 years later. God. Can we can we just bring all of our faves that we've spoken about back and right. fix shit? That would be nice. Or maybe I'd just that. sick and Bonnie on some people <laughs> until they fix shit. <laughs> and Bonnie and her murder and her, her murder bloody axe. <laughs> yes. That'd I'm like, great. who would we want to bring back that we've talked about? Everybody. Actually, I don't know that releasing Anne Bonnie on the world with, <laughs> with like, unbridled oh my anything might be a good, safe thing to happen. Anyway. Uh, anyway. <laughs> Brenda Howard was also arrested in Georgia in 1991. This is my favorite. So she was arrested while protesting the firing of a lesbian from the state attorney general's office due to Georgia's anti-sodomy laws. So this is the best. This is the best case. <laughs> so while she was in jail, her partner, Larry, remembers her, quote, reading steamy novels aloud to the assembled girls and being as much of a pain in the rear as possible so they'd not want to hold us any longer than absolutely necessary. And that's girls spelled G-R-R-L-Z. Yes. Yes. Yes, girls. Because I assume it was more than just cis women. Um, <laughs> which is just like, God, I love her. Mm. Like, I'm arrested, so what am I going to do? How about I read some smut? allowed and to make <laughs> the police really 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 uncomfortable so they let us go yeah just like oh honey um that's like and actually it was <laughs> that's like claude yeah. cahoon and marcel moore telling the nazis yes. oh no i'm sorry we don't have any coal are you cold i'm sorry you're so uncomfortable then get right? the fuck out Suddenly we don't have blankets. Oh, gosh. What is a blanket? Um, I don't know. Suddenly, actually, it was announced soon after that she started doing that, that the jailer was going to be releasing them <laughs> a few at a time uh, with the most irksome going first. <laughs> so she was one of the first people released because she was so obnoxious. 
<laughs> activism by ob- by obnoxiousness. Activism by annoyance. I love it. Right. So, so if you are ever at a protest, make sure to load some really quality like fanfic smut on your phone before you get put in jail. <laughs> and then you can just start reading it aloud while you're in prison. And then maybe they'll let you go sooner. I don't know if it'll work, but like can't hurt to try. Oh, man. Finally... <laughs> Finally, an outlet for my Rubius Hagrid and Nagini fic. Jeez. <laughs> I don't actually have... <laughs> I don't have Oh, my that, gosh. But I'm sure it exists out there. Thanks. Oh, of course Thanks, it does. Thanks, Harry Potter fandom. Thanks. What, what's that rule? 34? Rule 34. It... If it exists, yeah. there's porn of it on the internet. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm sure there's some really smutty Hagrid fic somewhere. I mean, I know there's one of... It, it might be satire, but I'm pretty sure that there's a Hagrid and uh, the giant squid fic. All right. I think so it's satire, tentacles. but it still exists, so... That might be one of those pose law things where you're like, <laughs> I don't know if this is actually, like, satire or or sincere, because there are those. Yeah. Like, is this just a really... Like, is this parody or not? I can't tell. The eternal um, question of... of um. What is it? Of My Immortal? Oh, right. Yeah. Is this parody or not? (laughs) (laughs) The saga continues. Yes. So speaking of, uh, Brenda Howard was was very sex positive. And as mentioned at the outset, she worked for a phone sex service. So she was hired by Lisa Veruso to work at her phone sex service in 1985. And according to Lisa, Howard was was able to voice what people wanted because of her love of phone fantasy and was always up for something creative. So she liked creative phone sex. Mm. Good job. I love it. Yeah. And related, she was also openly poly and involved in BDSM culture. So she was very sex positive. And both, we have to remember at the time in the the 70s, 80s, and 90s, being openly poly and openly involved in BDSM culture were highly controversial things to be publicly out about. I mean, you could make the case that they still are. Mm -hmm. Those are things that, I mean... I know people who are who aren't comfortable, who are more comfortable being out as queer than they are being out as poly mm-hmm. or being out as someone who's into kink or fetish or BDSM culture. Mm-hmm. So and that was even more true back then. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So she was just kind of a like, give no fucks. This is who I am. Take it or leave it kind of person. Mm-hmm. She uh, facilitated the polyamorous perverts and switchblades events at the Spiegel Society, which is the longest running BDSM education and support group in the U.S., which was founded in 1971. Um, she was actively involved in the local chapter of the National Leather Association. Her friend Diana Vera recalled leaving a club with Howard, who said when they got into the cab, we didn't find anyone decent to whip all night, which led to a very satisfying evening with the cab driver. <laughs> oh my God. This is so great. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I love Brenda Howard so much. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> uh, can you imagine getting into an Uber and having that be like what happens? It's oh. like, oh, God damn, I didn't find anyone to whip tonight. And the cab driver's like, well, <laughs> I'd be interested. <laughs> be like, well, the night is young. <laughs> There's. St- <laughs> hey, guess what? I think I have a solution to that problem. So, unfortunately, uh, Brenda Howard died of colon cancer. Weirdly enough, June 28th, 2005, on the 36th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots, she died of colon cancer. 
and is survived by her uh, partner, Larry Nelson, who is still very much involved in queer activism. I believe that he identifies as straight, but he's been very, very heavily involved in it. And and that's how they met. They met through queer activism. Um, So he was an ally for a long time. So here, okay, this is one of my favorite quotes from Brenda Howard. I just want to end on some really awesome things. She said, of herself, bye, Polly, switch. I'm not greedy. I know what I want. I was just like, oh, girl, same girl, same. <laughs> I love you. You're like, I love who, her. if I were more of a, if I were more of an in-your-face person, I would want to be Brenda Howard, but I'm, I'm not confrontational. It's, so it's aspirational not, for you. Whenever right. whenever yeah. you feel like you're, you know, getting taken advantage of or somebody's treating like you like a doormat, you just think, what would Brenda Howard do? Oh my right? God, we need to oh. make wristbands. What would Brenda Howard <gasps> do? What would Brenda Howard do? Yes. Uh, I need to put that on my wall. Mm-hmm. What would Brenda Howard do? So there's also a statement from someone from Binet USA called her, quote, one of the original bisexual curmudgeons. And that is another thing that I need merch of because I want to be a bisexual curmudgeon. I kind of am a bisexual curmudgeon, <laughs> thank you very much. Like, I am a grumpy, grumpy person for about many things. And now I've just found my new, like, that's, descriptor. That's your bisexual curmudgeon. Bisexual curmudgeon. Yes. Yes, there are there are three genders. <laughs> Bisexual curmudgeon. I'm sure I could come up with some. I'm sure there are other ones, but I love that one. Bisexual curmudgeon. That's that's my gender. So as one of the articles that I read put it about Brenda Howard, we marched today because bisexual women marched then. So she's a very she's a very important person. She did so many things and was involved in helping so many different people. I mean, she was willing to go to jail for, you know, lesbian rights, for fighting for transgender health care. And and one of the things that I loved most reading about her was was seeing how much to her it wasn't about there was a level at which it was about her identity, but mostly it was just she wanted to help anybody who was marginalized. Mm-hmm. And would go, would literally go to any march, protest, rally, anything, just when and where I want to help. I want to be involved. I want everybody to have equal rights. And I'll fight for anybody who's marginalized, whether they're the same as me or not. And that is an attitude that I feel like is really missing in current, in in a lot of current queer community. That idea of like, you might not be the same as me, but like, who the fuck cares if you're mar- if you're being oppressed right now? Like, I'm going to fight for you. Mm-hmm. I will fight for you whether or not you share my identity or not. Yeah. Like, other people within the community were people to be helped and supported rather than, you know, enemies to, to tear down. And I, j- I just love that about her, that she was willing to go to bat for anybody. Yeah, yeah. I so, love that. And that's, yeah, I mean, that's what Pride is supposed to be about. Mm-hmm. You can see why she would be someone connected with starting the events because that's what Pride was about. It's just all of us need to come together and be as visible as possible and, like, society and then, like, let's see what society does. And who cares? Like, fuck that. Fuck them mm-hmm. for, for for treating us this way. We're, we're just going to be ourselves and we're going to be out and we're going to be one community fighting together to exist and celebrate ourselves. Absolutely. So, yeah. And – Speaking of coming together as one community united around something that we embrace, um, let's start a conversation about Gilbert Baker, who is uh, who's the creator of the LGBT rainbow flag that we all know and love. Nice. 
um, that has become, you know, an internationally recognized symbol for queerness. Um, so his early life. So first off, before we start, I just want to say this is my favorite thing. So he's he self described himself as the gay Betsy Ross um, nice. and performed drag under the persona Busty Ross. Oh which my god! I love. So that's, that's <laughs> so oh. Busty Ross, I love it. Busty Ross. Oh so, god, that's that's delightful. Yeah. So he was born June second. 1951 in Chanute, Kansas, which was a tiny rural town, and he grew up in Parsons, Kansas, again, another small rural Kansas town. His mother was a teacher, and his father was a lawyer and a judge, and his grandmother owned a women's clothing store. Mm. He was drawn to art and fashion design as a child. You know, my inclination is to think no doubt influenced by being around his grandmother's store. And, you know, from an early age, kind of struggled to fit in with his peers in this rural conservative town where he faced bullying and harassment and even, you know, later in his teen years struggled with suicidal thoughts, right? Like, that story that we all know of a kid, a queer Mm -hmm. kid growing up in a conservative area and not getting that support. So he was drafted into the U.S. Army at age 19 in 1970. So you have to to understand that Vietnam was still going on. Um, So the draft was, was still enacted. And he actually hoped that getting drafted into the army would be kind of his escape from alienation and bullying. But he said that he faced severe homophobia in basic training. So after getting out of basic training, he opted to become a medic. You know, he, he said, you know, if he was going to be in the army, he was going to be doing it, helping people. And so mm. he was reassigned and stationed in San Francisco, where he was sort of able to breathe a sigh of relief seeing this burgeoning gay community in the counterculture mo- movement that was emerging post Stonewall. He was honorably discharged from the military in 1972. And so he was, you know, spared from joining the war front actually in Vietnam. So after being... Being discharged from the army, he decided to stay in San Francisco and began living as an openly gay man, as he said, quote, I had to find my own gay family. Mm. He entrenched himself in the gay community there, and having been profoundly changed by what he saw as a medic as an orth- at the orthopedic hospital in San Francisco that he worked at, you know, in terms of the horrors of war and amputations, he you know, started to join the anti-war efforts that were going on. A couple of quotes on coming out that I really loved from him. I came out because I fell in love, he says. It wasn't a terrible, horrible, damn thing. I was in love with somebody and I wanted to scream it from the rooftops, which is fantastic. In an article in 2015, he remarked on the relationship with his parents regarding a sexual orientation that, quote, when I was young, they thought I was from outer space. I was the only gay person they probably knew, and they struggled with that. Everyone knew I was gay, but they just didn't want to talk about it. Mm. So, uh, you know, unfortunately, it would take another three decades, he said, before he and his parents would reach some kind of loving place in their relationship. But that eventually came. Mm. And so he continued his life in San Francisco. He worked on the first marijuana legalization initiative, California Proposition 19, in 1972. And his friend, who was an activist, Mary Dunn, taught him to sew, and he started to use his artistic talents by creating banners that were used during anti-war and pro-gay marches and protests. Um, And he actually, uh, he also joined the gay activist drag group, Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, which is still going 
going on today. Mm-hmm. And he said, I couldn't, I couldn't figure out exactly how long he stayed in them, but he did eventually leave because he, you know, he found it was really, really liberating, wonderful. But when the sisters started to become more politically organized, right-wing conservative Christian groups like Jerry Falwell started using, like, video and images of the sisters and their performances for, like, hate propaganda. And he's like, I do not want to be a tool for the right wing and Mm. so ended up leaving he did not want the propagation of his image to be used in that way wow yeah so baker became friends with san francisco supervisor harvey milk who in case you don't know was one of the first gay people elected to public office and one day harvey came to gilbert and suggested to him that he work on creating a new symbol for the lgbt political movement so as baker wrote in metro weekly quote we needed a logo a symbol We needed a positive image that could unite us. I sewed my own dresses, so why not a flag? At Harvey's behest, I went about creating our rainbow flag. I had never felt so empowered, so free. Mm. Yeah. And so he specifically sought to create a more positive alternative to replace the the pink triangle that, you know, we talked about before with Magnus Hirschfeld that was associated with you know, Nazi concentration camps and the persecution of gays in the Holocaust. And he really wanted to build something new and and independent from a history of oppression mm. and genocide. So he said, up until the rainbow flag, the pink triangle was the dominant symbol for our movement, but it was negative. It had a depressing origin. You know, Holocaust and murder was put on us by Hitler. We needed something from us. Hmm. So he settled really quickly on the need for it to specifically be a flag. He was inspired by the American flag and its power. So at that time, you know, in 1976, the United States was celebrating its bicentennial, and he saw the American flag being put on everything. Porches, Mm. windshields, flags flying on cars, you know, everything, everywhere, paper plates. Um, And so he said, it really put the seed in my head. I was like, wait a minute. We are a global tribe, and a flag really fits our mission. In, an, mm. in another interview, he said, Flags are about power. Flags say something. You put a rainbow flag on your windshield, and you're saying something. Hmm. And that still, happen- wow. like, that still happens today. Yep. You see this symbol, and you immediately know what it's about. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So Harvey Milk mm. paid $1,000 for Baker's work, and then Baker and 30 friends... 30 volunteers began designing the flag in 1978, and they 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 worked on it day and night, huddled in the attic of the San Francisco Gay Community Center. They dyed the fabric by hand in large trash cans and sewed the stripes uh, and sewed the flags stripe by stripe. And then, um, you know, laundromats, uh, you weren't allowed to, like, wash things in the laundromat to, like, rinse of the dye. So they waited until nighttime and broke into a laundromat and shoved all of the... (laughs) <laughs> shoved all what? of them in there to like rinse the dye. He he's quoted oh as saying gosh. it was an organic hand dyed big mess cotton. Oh my god, you don't even want to know, he said. Stitch 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 on a little singer. It's midnight, you know. Like I sew things by hand. Or not by hand, on my I have a singer. Mm-hmm. Probably about as old as his singer. <laughs> <laughs> but like I can't imagine hand dyeing I don't hand dye anything. That just because yeah. that just sounds well, awful. And this was a huge flag. This was so this was yep. thirty feet by 60, 60 feet. Ooh. The first flag. Wow. So it it debuted to the public on June twenty fifth, nineteen seventy eight, and was raised in the United Nations Plaza to commemorate the San Francisco Gay Freedom Day Parade, aka Pride. Uh, they mm. specifically chose that location to first fly it as 
a very deliberate statement to say, hey, this is a global position, this is a global movement, this is a global community. Hmm. Um, and Harvey Milk also rode in the parade under the flag in the, you know, in the car float. Right. And so, again, like, what I love about researching Gilbert Baker is that he had so many interviews where, you know, we can use his own voice, which is really fantastic. We can hear, we can hear his own words about his impact. Um, so he said, mm -hmm. hundreds of thousands of people passed the flag that day, and they knew it was our new symbol. That was a day that changed my life forever. I knew it, that was going to be the most important thing I ever did. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So the original flag had eight colors instead of the six it has now. Um, and each color represented something that was empowering to the community. So the original flag uh, started from top down hot pink, which represented sex, red for life, orange for healing, yellow for sunlight, green for nature, turquoise for magic and art, indigo for serenity, and violet for spirit, or the human spirit. Mm. And then following Harvey Milk's unfortunate assassination later that year, the flag took on even more significance, and popularity yeah. of the symbol skyrocketed. It was used again in the 1979 Pride Parade Committee to demonstrate the gay community's strength and solidarity after this tragedy. Mm. And, you know, he remarks in, a, in that same Metro Weekly piece where he, you know, is... is he writes this piece where he says, talking about Harvey Milk, My liberation came at a painful cost. In the ultimate act of anti-gay violence, Harvey Milk and Mayor George Moscone were assassinated. The bullets were meant for Harvey to silence him and, by extension, every one of us. Uniting a community cost him his life. Hmm. Um... Yeah, so just to juxtapose wow. that with, like, Harvey coming to him and asking him to create this symbol and feeling more free than he'd ever felt in his life, and then seeing that freedom come at a very tangible cost was really, really, right. just really profound. Yeah, um, I can imagine. Yeah. So in that same year, 1979, pink and turquoise were dropped from the flag because it made it hard to, to mass produce, and Gilbert wanted it to be freely available. He wanted it to be everywhere. So the hot pink dye made it too expensive to mass produce, and so he did, and he decided to combine the turquoise and the indigo into one blue stripe representing harmony to make the flag an even amount of stripes so it could be flown in two equal halves on light poles on either sides of the street for the 1979 Gay Freedom Day Parade. The committee wanted to be like, hey, can we put three colors on this side and three colors on this side? And, you know, flags just look nicer with an even amount of stripes so huh. there you go so i just love this that like badass gilbert wanted the flag to be easy to make and available everywhere and be able to be mass produced kind of all over the place and he also refused to trademark it he refused any him. attempt to for anybody to convince him to trademark it because he believed that it belonged to the community mm. um fellow fellow gay activist cleve jones said that, quote, it was his gift to the world. Hmm. Um, and I really, really love this quote from Baker where he talks about, you know, I mean, I, this is just going to be like quotes from him from now on because he says it the best is, so he says, a true flag is not something that you can really design. A true flag is torn from the soul of the people. A flag is something that everyone owns and that's why they work. The rainbow flag is like other flags in that sense. It belongs to the people. Hmm. And so talking about the significance of, like, specifically the rainbow flag, um, I wanted to give a couple more quotes. He says, We needed something beautiful, something from us. The rainbow is so perfect because it really fits our diversity in, in terms of race, gender, ages, all of those things. Plus, it's a natural flag. It's from the sky. He's, he's so precious. I love him. He's, so, he's such a he's delightful, so delightful human being. I know. 
So he also says, We needed something to express our joy, our beauty, our power. And the rainbow did that. We're an ancient, wonderful tribe of mm. people. We picked something from nature. We picked something beautiful. Mm. I just love that. An ancient, wonderful tribe of people. Like that's that's what we're trying like, like that. that's what we're talking about all the time. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, later on in life, after he saw, um, I think it was actually after, uh, I think it was in 2015 when the Supreme Court ruling for same-sex marriage went through. And so after mm-hmm. seeing an editorial, like a viral editorial cartoon that showed the Confederate flag coming down and the rainbow flag rising, he said, hmm. the rainbow flag is beautiful because it's about love. The Confederate flag is ugly because it's about hate. It's pretty simple from the art level. Beautiful versus ugly. Nice. I love him. I, yes. I love what a good. What a good. What a good. So, yeah. So, um, Gilbert, you know, continued as a master vexillographer for over 40 years. He continued having wow. a uh, career in flag making. So, in 1979, he took a job at Paramount Flag Company in San Francisco and started creating more and more flags and, like, flamboyant window displays for the business, which actually caught the eye of then-mayor of San Francisco, Diane Feinstein, who commissioned him to design flags and banners for her inauguration ceremony. And that kind of led to more high-profile commissions. He designed banners and flags for visits by foreign heads of state, dignitaries, and he even designed flags, banners, and buntings for the 1984 Democratic National Convention. Uh, Some of his other work, you know, he designed flags for, like, the Super Bowl. He designed flags for many, many um, nation-state leaders. You know, he he designed a flag for the Premier of China, the President of Venezuela, the President of the the Philippines, King of Spain, and more. Wow. So, you know, he was kind of, like, internationally sought after as this master flag maker. (laughs) Paramount closed in 1987 but that didn't stop his work. He continued making flags for many civic events and groups, including San Francisco Symphony Black and White Ball, concerts in Golden Gate Park, and of course, continued making flags for Pride. He even broke world records for creating two of the world's longest flags. So, Of course there's a world record for that. Of course. I mean, there's a world record for everything. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. So, you know, alongside with, with Brenda Howard doing things at the 25th anniversary of Stonewall in 1994, in, in New York City, he created a mile-long rainbow rainbow flag carried by 5,000 people. Nice. 5,000 people had to carry this thing. Good (laughs) gravy. And then he broke his own world record in 2003 for the 25th anniversary of the flag's design in which he made a flag that spanned from sea to sea for Key West Pride. So it basically, it stretched from the Gulf of Mexico to Key West in the Atlantic Ocean. What? Yeah, it was like a mile and a quarter long. Wow. So, like, the first bit of land. <laughs> it was in the Atlantic Ocean, in the Gulf of... Like, what? So, That's he, crazy. you know, he was like, he had it, like, what the hell am I going to do with this thing? And so he eventually cut it into sections and distributed it to more than 100 cities around the world. So, like, literally oh, global awesome. pride. Like, this piece of, these pieces so of this cool. flag are everywhere. You know, it's like, oh, you're in London, go take this to Spain. You're in, you, you know, you're in uh, Madrid, go take this to Berlin. You know, it's, it's amazing. That's so cool. I love him. He's just like an like an optimist, lovely, artful yeah. man. So he moved to New York City in 1984 and spent the rest of his life there, continuing his creative work and activism. He never stopped working on the rainbow flag, and he created other pieces of fine art celebrating the flag and the LGBT community. He made silk screens and gold bias pieces of art and continued sewing dresses and making gowns and a whole bunch of other things. And his friend, Charlie Beale, said he would get up every day 
and make art. So like, mm. what what a lovely existence. Some accolades and recognition. He was chosen as the Grand Marshal in several Pride events in cities around the world throughout the decades. Cities that hosted him include Philadelphia, New York City, Toronto, San Francisco, London, Stockholm, Vancouver, and Winnipeg. In 2008, he returned to San Francisco to work on the Gus Van Sant film Milk, honoring the legacy of Harvey Milk and the events around his assassination, covering the events around his assassination. And he created for that film period banners, and he even has a cameo in the film. He was honored by the National Gallery of Art in Dublin, Ireland in 2011, and he presented a flag to President Mary McAleese. In 2015, San Francisco actually created the Gilbert Baker Award, which is presented annually during Pride. And in the same year, the MoMA, the New York City Museum of Modern Art, asked Gilbert to contribute a flag. And... On the unveiling ceremony, which was on June 26th, it was the same day that the Supreme Court ruling legalized same-sex marriage across the United States. And upon seeing the White House lit up rainbow, he said he was overwhelmed and thought, I don't have to worry about making the rainbow flag a success anymore, Mm. which is lovely. And he considered like one of the highest points in his career in his life was in as recent as 2016, when he was invited to the White House for a reception to commemorate Pride Month by President Barack Obama, and he presented Barack Obama with a hand-dyed cotton rainbow flag. Wow. Yeah. So, okay, like, not only is this guy an amazing optimist and artistic, like, he's also just a really, like, a, a really persistent badass. Um, so he suffered a severe stroke in 2012 that affected his physical movement. But even though he had like a, you know, there was like a pessimistic prognosis from doctors who told him like, hey, you know, you might never regain full movement of your hands. His optimism never left. He began his own personal rehab therapy by applying beads and sequins to gowns by hand. And he actually regained his ability to sew in only a few months. Uh, wow. And so, like that, so su- like that summer after he suffered the stroke, he was working on these different projects um, on Fire Island. And then he was crowned best dressed at the annual Drag Invasion of the Pines. That's nice. So, like, I just I love him. You know, you're told you're never gonna make make art again. Think again, fuckers. I will always be fabulous. I love it. <laughs> um. <laughs> And then, uh, just wrapping up here, when tr- so when Trump was elected, Baker amped up his activism, and he actually worked on a piece of art. He created a powerful response. It was, quote, a collection of Holocaust outfits emblazoned with pink triangles. These were exhibited at the Art Saves Lives Gallery in San Francisco in January 2017. Mm. Um, you know, so he still kept going, still had so many things to say. Um, just this little, like, side thing that I wanted to put in, just, like, a a quote, you know, from him a couple of years ago on love and relationships. He and his, he had a best friend that he had known, you know, for over 21 years and said they, quote, love each other deeply. But Baker, uh, actually said in that article, quote, I don't know if I'm the marrying kind. I think I'll drive somebody crazy. Maybe it's better to just stay friends. Gilbert, I'll I'll marry you. It's okay. Let's hang out together and make (laughs) art. Um, so, unfortunately, Gilbert passed away in his sleep on March 31st, 2017, so, you know, just just last year, at the age of 65 from heart disease. Memorial services were held in San Francisco and New York, including, in New York, protest marches against Trump. Hmm. And then, earlier this year, earlier in 2018, Gilbert's estate convened an advisory committee to support programs, events, and endorsements that would honor Gilbert's legacy of queer pride, liberty, and visibility. Nice. Yeah. 
Some other fun That's facts so cool. about his his legacy. Uh, New York City Pride Committee actually partnered with a design team to create a new rainbow font called Gilbert. And you can actually, uh, you can actually search for it online and get it, I think, for free. <gasps> Yay! And then on June 2nd, 2017, which would have been his 66th birthday, Google actually had a Google Doodle honoring him. And, like, Aww. they went into San Francisco and, you know, looked at pride flags and they, like, it's like a little animation that had, like, the pride flag, like, stripe by stripe being stitched together and it's really cute. Oh, that's precious. Yeah. And so to kind of, you know, wrap this up, I just, much like Gretchen did with Brenda, I wanted to end on some final quotes from Gilbert. One that, you know, a couple that I think are really, really powerful. So on encouraging gay youth to come out of the closet without fear, he said, you can live in this light of the truth. It's totally liberating. You don't have to live a lie. Living a lie will mess you up. It will send you into depression. It will warp your values. My message would be, don't give up hope. It does get better. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of that that piece that he wrote for Metro Weekly, talking about continuing to work for liberty and visibility, he writes, The strides we have made since I first flew the rainbow flag are unprecedented. The United States GLBT community is more visible than ever before. We face fewer hurdles and less violence than we once did. I can only hope the events of my life and the lives of friends I've lost have made being gay just a bit easier. After all, personal freedom is what started me on the road to here with the hope that others would never feel the isolation and desperation that plagued me. But we cannot rest on our laurels. We cannot take our freedoms for granted. Indeed, there are still parts of the world where being gay is punishable, sometimes by death. The rainbow flag inspires hope and makes us think. Our work to unite our community has only just begun. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He's right. So I wanted to end on that because that's really powerful. And, you know, it's he did so much and gave us so much. And Brenda Howard did so much and gave us so much. And as we as we move into, you know, pride seasons that are becoming increasingly more and more corporate and capitalist and, you know, kind of watered down simultaneously in this political environment in which things are violence is only heightening. I think it's really important for us to remember where these events came from and when what these symbols mean. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's not just, you know, a gay dance party and it's not just a rainbow slapped on a pair of sneakers. These are these are things that have a very specific history and significance to us that you know, let's work on really empowering ourselves to use that and reclaim these things. And right, right. Because the power, the problem is never in the symbol or the words themselves. Hmm. The problem is in the ways that either that it can either be in the case of things like the rainbow flag, the ways it's been, you know, commodified and turned into something to make money. But the, the problem is in the pride flag mm-hmm. um, or the rainbow symbol in and of itself. The problem is the ways in which it's been co-opted for something that doesn't represent what we actually stand for. And I think it's important to remember that, that like the, the problem is never going to be in the symbols or words or events in and of themselves. It is the ways in which they have been warped from what they were meant to symbolize, and those are things we can take back. Mm -hmm. We can always make these things empowering again rather than, you know, discarding them in favor of something else because because they still are empowering for many parts of the world and for many people. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah. Yeah. And even, you know, the very concept of like being marketed to by corporations using the rainbow flag, like having corporate support is not a bad thing in and of itself. It means that we're getting closer towards, you know, certain elements of 
you know, not necessarily assimilation, but acceptance, you know, like the fact of the matter is that, you know, seeing ourselves on TV, seeing ourselves reflected in advertising and in brands, you know, once they think that they can get money out of us, you know, that does go a certain way towards normalizing queer experience. But we always have to remember that it can't just go beyond cool, let's get their money. It has to go beyond and let's support this community. You know, do these organizations that are slapping rainbow flags on things and having pride floats, do they have inclusive non-discrimination policies for employment? Are they giving money to queer organizations with the proceeds from their rainbow products? You know, these are things that we have to think about. And so there are certainly more ethical ways we can exist simultaneously with this corporatization of pride. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think it's, it's ways that we really need to very deliberately focus on. Right. So before we head out, uh, going to switch back to something a little more on the upbeat side, uh, talk a little bit about pop culture and visual representations of the people we've been talking about. So uh, Gilbert Baker is the subject of a PBS documentary by Mary Jo Farron called Rainbow Pride. Uh, as Lee said, he did recreate his original rainbow flag for the 2008 movie Milk, which is about activist Harvey Milk, and was interviewed in a featurette on the DVD. In the Dustin Lance Black's docuseries, When We Rise, which was last year, I believe, mm-hmm. that that came out. And, ad- um, and adapted, is- by, by, um, adapted from Cleve Jones's book. Too. Right. Yep. He is shown sewing the flag, and then uh, there's a little bit where he explains why he chose the colors he did. Um, oh, okay. So this is my favorite thing. There are children's books about Yee! Gilbert Baker. <laughs> like, this makes me so happy that there are children's books about the, the creation of the rainbow flag mm-hmm. and pride. And that just – it's just so delightful. So the books are Sewing the Rainbow by Gail Pittman and Pride, the story of Harvey Milk and the Rainbow Flag by Rob Sanders. And I kind of want to get them because I just like I just love that they're children's yeah. resources for things like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the GLBT Historical Society in San Francisco, too, also owns the sewing machine that Gilbert Baker used and a recreation of the original flag. And then as um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the MoMA in New York has samples of the flag in its design collection as an example of an internationally recognized and important symbol on par with things like the recycling symbol and the Creative Commons symbol. It's that ubiquitous. Right, right. Everyone, like, you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who saw a rainbow flag and didn't know what it meant. Mm. Not really pop culture, but uh, Lee mentioned that there was a Gilbert Baker Award. There is also the Brenda Howard Memorial Award, which was created by PFLAG, which is the Parents, Families, and Friends of Lesbians and Gays Network. It was the first award by a major American LGBT society to honor an openly bisexual person. And the annual award recognizes an individual or organization whose work on behalf of the bisexual community and the greater LGBT community best exemplifies the vision, principles, and community service exemplified by Brenda Howard and who serves as a positive and visible role model for the entire LGBT community. I thought that was cool. And there's also, um, in 2015, her partner, Larry Nelson, actually made a video about her, uh, a tribute highlighting her accomplishments for the Still Bisexual campaign. And we'll put a link to that in our show notes and maybe even the video itself. It's it's really, really lovely. And um, she, as I kind of mentioned at the outset, she tends to be left out of the story quite a bit. So there really aren't a whole lot of references to her in pop culture or videos or even documentaries about her. But we can change We really that. don't have anything for her. I know. We need to because she's awesome. She's a badass motherfucker and I love her. She's a bisexual curmudgeon. Again, we implore you, queer filmmakers, 
Make this story happen. That and Claude Cahoon. Yes. (laughs) Yes, they need to happen. So, uh... So, that brings us to how gay were they? How... Lee? Oh. Oh, me first. Okay. How gay were they? Yeah. Um, how gay were they, Lee? So I think I think me and Gretchen both ended up giving ourselves a rubric of, of 20 out of 10. Um, yes. I I just, I, I love both of these people. I mean, obviously, you know, they were super gay or bi, but with Gilbert, you know, I absolutely aim for Gilbert's optimism, wonder, and, and joy for life. And to be able to create mm. a symbol that has become so ubiquitously loved and supportive and empowering, and to be able to find the the history behind it and the meaning behind it was so joyful. And hearing Brenda Howard and how much of a give-no-fucks attitude she had, I want to employ that in my life. I simultaneously want to give no fucks and also love everything in the world. Um, a la Brenda that's and a, Gilbert simultaneously. That's a that's a really good life goal. Yeah. I like both of those because yeah, I love his gentleness and his just desire to see everybody represented. And okay, so yes, twenty out of ten pride flags. Also a rainbow. Also a pride parade made entirely out of rainbows and glitter. <laughs> that is my that's my ranking this week for how gay were they? Um, I. I'm going to change what I wrote in my notes because of what you are saying was what I love about both of them is that both of them represent a desire to care for everybody. Mm. They just showed it in different ways. And that's what I that's what I would love to embody in my life as is to have the the desire to create something that everybody can find meaning in that Gilbert Baker exemplifies while also being the kind of person who fights for everybody. Mm. Mm-hmm. And stands up for all of the marginalized people, even those that may not specifically belong to my same intersections or identity that Brenda Howard represents. Like, yeah, create something beautiful that everyone can enjoy and also fight for everybody, if I could. I think those are life really, goals. really great goals for, you know, anybody and everybody to have. So go out and, right. and find your own inner gay Betsy Ross and bisexual curmudgeon. <laughs> Yes. Yes. Oh, there's there's another gender. We've got bisexual go. curmudgeon. We've got gay Betsy Ross. Um, <laughs> or busty Ross. We've got Ross. lesbian pirate. Yeah. yeah. Lesbian pirate is a good one. There we go. There we go. All right. So uh, with that, that is it for today's episode. You can find us online individually. Gretchen, where can people find you upon the interwebs? Uh, well, when I am not talking about badass by heroes and the gay Betsy Ross, I am writing nerdy media analysis and fangirling over everything science fiction and Winona Earp. Also talking lots about books for thefandamentals.com and my personal website, gnellis.com. Or you can find me on Tumblr and Twitter as at gnelliswriter, all one word. What about you, Lee? So when I'm not imagining getting a beautiful gown sewn by Busty Ross or sitting in a jail cell hearing smut read by a bisexual yes. curmudgeon, I'm usually talking about comics and queer TV over at A Paradox in Flux on Twitter and editing these episodes. Um, that's that's <laughs> most of my life these days. Um, yeah. <laughs> History is Gay Podcast can be found on Tumblr at History is Gay Podcast, Twitter at at History is Gay Pod. You can always drop us a line with questions, suggestions, or just to say hi at historiesgaypodcast at gmail.com. We love getting emails. Mm-hmm. And if you are enjoying our show, remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It helps people find the show. We can expand our awesome community around the world. We probably won't ever be as widely recognized as the Pride flag, but you know, 
Goals. A couple of queer folks can dream. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) So that's it for History is Gay. Until next time. Stay queer. And stay curious. (laughs) 